Welcome, everyone, to episode 187 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode, we're rotoscoping our way back to Texas in the 60s with a review of writer-director Richard Linklater's latest film, Apollo 10 and a Half, A Space Age Childhood. Before we get to that, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Scott. Uh, it's been actually a minute since we recorded an episode. You know, we put that uh, most anticipated in the can. Actually, recorded it before. Um, that was even our Oscars. last episode that we recorded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, before the Oscars, so yeah. it's been a couple of weeks now, I guess, almost a couple of weeks since we've recorded um, an episode. And uh, yeah, it's it was a minute since I watched this uh, movie as well. You know, I've seen a couple of other new movies since then. Um, but obviously, you know, I advocated for us to talk about sure. um, the new film for my favorite director. Like uh, we were talking about before the show, my most anticipated film of 2021. Yeah. Um, finally coming out, coming out on Netflix. Uh, my other, my number two most anticipated is also going to be coming out this month with The Northman. So, um, you know, fortunately didn't have to anticipate them for too much longer. Um, Justice for 2021. Yeah. But even watching, uh, you know, on Netflix at home, it was still a treat to have a new Richard Linklater movie to enjoy for the first time in about three years. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, it's been a minute. It's been even longer since a classic Richard Linklater film, probably, because I think we if I'm remembering correctly, our conversation on the podcast about where'd you go, Bernadette, was not uh, was below average for Linklater, I would say, uh, comfortably. Yeah, no, it was it was a atypical movie for him this movie is very much more in his wheelhouse which we'll talk about but probably the first one of those since everybody wants some back in 2016 yeah so it, it has been a minute it's been a minute for me as well we did put that podcast in the can like you mentioned i was gone on vacation last week in san diego seeing uh where Ang the the anchor man as he will only be referred to no need to call him mr burgundy uh where he haunted um back i guess back 20 years it's been like 20 years since that movie came out right like it's 2002 was it 2002 2004 no it was like 04 i believe okay yeah 2004 close to 20 years i don't know anyway would recommend san diego i recommend the zoo la jolla yeah i always um, hear great things about it yeah really great city weather was pretty good got a little hot towards the end of the trip um got up like around 90 the last couple days we were there which was pretty warm but it was very nice before that but back now, feeling refreshed. Didn't didn't really watch many movies, honestly. I was looking at my letterbox. I ended up not watching any movies from the last time I saw in a theater was X when we were in Winston when, when we were in Winston Salem until I saw Ambulance a couple nights ago, which oh boy, do we have some we have a few words to say about that later on in the podcast. Movies are back, baby. What a picture. <laughs> I'm still I was yeah, yeah, wow. We'll save that for later. Um, but yeah, then I, I feel, I feel back on it now. I watched Apollo 10 and a half on the flight back, watched ambulance. going to go see everything everywhere all at once tomorrow night. I think I also saw that over the weekend. So yeah. So m movies are back. I'm, I'm back in, back in the groove. I, I was watching TV on the trip. So I, I have devoured three quarters of the new season of marvelous Miss Maisel. Hey. Uh, so I've got two episodes left of that, which I'll be knocking out nice. sooner or later. Um, so I wasn't devoid of content, just not watching movies, which is, you know, it's nice to have a break every once in a while. We all, we all need it every once in a while. 
yeah, I have heard it is the year of TV and not the year of cinema. You're the only. You're actually the only one who's been saying that. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> and I don't even believe it because honestly, the movies have been really good so far. This year. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been an it's been an early it's a, a strong early start to the year, for yeah. sure. But why don't we why don't we just go ahead and talk about one of those strong early starts? At least I'm I'm guessing your your opinion on this movie. But I guess we'll we'll see that how that plays out in just a few minutes. But as already mentioned, today's topic conversation will be Scott Harvey's most anticipated movie of last year, uh, the most recent film from Richard Linklater, Apollo Ten and a Half, very loosely based on the auteur's childhood. Apollo Ten and a Half tells the fantastical, fictional, rotoscope animated tale of Stanley, who, as an adult, reminisces about the time at the end of fourth grade in the summer of 1969, where the country's and his and his family's obsession with the space race came to a peak in the lead up to Apollo 11. However, Stanley tells the lesser-known story of how he was recruited by NASA and trained for a covert mission to the moon ahead of that now-famous Apollo 11 expedition. I'll stop there, Scott, but this is a uh, it is a voice cast of at least Linklater previouses. I don't know if I would say they're regulars, although maybe they're trending in that direction, but people like Jack Black, Glenn Powell, there's a longer list there as well that we, we could get into. But as we were sort of discussing right before we jumped into this, it's no secret that Richard Linklater is your favorite director of all time. But back in 2018, when we reviewed Where'd You Go, Bernadette, we weren't overly impressed with it. Would you describe Apollo 10 and a half with its more trademark inspired by Linklater's own life vibe and rotoscope style as a return to form for your favorite director? Or has the blip of Where'd You Go, Bernadette become a bit of a trend? Not at all. Um, he's he's back in business, as I kind of thought he might be when uh, I saw, you know, just the concept of this film, what he was doing. Obviously, he has uh, made these rotoscope animation style movies before. Now, this one is a little different if you read about the actual animation style. There's like he it's it's more photorealistic than what he has tried to do in the past like it's almost 2d it's like 2d in a way it's not fully rotoscope it's there's more technical ways to describe it but um it's not quite the same um as what he did with waking life or scanner darkly but um you know but it, it has a similar look to it but again he's going for a more photorealistic vibe because the whole idea of this movie is blurring the line between sort of reality and fantasy and so i think by um giving us ostensibly you know human faces this ostensibly human world and you know things that we are very recognizable to us landmarks people you know shows on tv whatever but animating them um in a you know this very unique animation style um it you know kind of blurs the line between again reality and fiction in a way and not that those other movies weren't doing that i mean waking life is the most fever dream of a movie that Linklater ever made and you know a scanner darkly is about drug addiction so it is trying to give you that sort of hallucinogenic um feel to the whole movie so he always has a purpose for um you know the, why he chooses the stories that he does to make these animated films. I just think it comes across clearer than ever here. And it's very consistent. I think the whole, the, the, thematically, the movie is very consistent with sort of the ethos of Linklater as a filmmaker in his best movies. I mean, he is very versatile. He has proven that he's able to make, you know, a crowd pleasing movie like School of Rock, um, for example, that's just, a, you know, down fairly down the middle mainstream comedy that he did with Mike White. Um, 
But really where he, you know, plays in his sandbox is these quote unquote hangout movies. Um, you know, your dazed and confused, your boyhoods, your everybody wants some, your even your before trilogy in a way is a hangout uh, or hangout movies. I mean, they're dialogue driven. Um, you know, they're sort of about these these characters interacting with each other, people interacting with each other. And he's fascinated by that. Um, and he's fascinated by the sublime coming out of the mundane, um, you know, two people meeting on a train by chance or boyhood, you know, I think is the most clear example of that. Uh, just a collection of moments that people might consider to be mundane. It's not the necessarily the milestones or the highlights that you expect to see from somebody's coming of age. Um, but they add up to something that is again, transcendent. Um, and to tie in this movie almost like is super you know su supernatural maybe is not exactly the right word but again transcendent literally in this movie physically we we're talking about physically transcending like outside of um the world as we know it and going to space and so it's a great metaphor and great like juxtaposition that he does with you know the cosmic out in the galaxy beyond our human world juxtaposed with the very uh realistic very like you said inspired by his own childhood um details of stan's life on earth um in houston and the movie starts out and it's very unexpected like it's it's kind of unexpected the way it starts out because it's like he's getting whisked away from school and he's in this room he's a little boy and he's in this room with zachary levi and glenn powell oh, no. who are playing like the nasa people and they are basically telling him that he's going to go on this mission now because they basically they made the the thing the launch uh shoot i don't i don't forget what the exact term of it is but they but they built it too small the um, pod. and glenn powell he they're like how did you he's like how did you build it too small and glenn powell's like well do you get 100 on every math test um so it, kind of some funny moments there but you think it's going to be like this you know adventure film almost in a way and then it's almost like Linklater is trolling in a way. Like you have to respect it. At least I do. Um, because he's like, he's, he opens up the movie this way in the first five minutes. And then he's like, you know what? Never mind. We should actually talk about like the start of this whole thing. And then we like basically get a traditional coming of age movie for about 50 minutes of him just describing the details of his life, his family, you know, the things that he he being Stan here, but also, you know, by proxy being uh, Richard Linklater as well. It's set in Houston. Um, and it just becomes, it becomes very grounded all of a sudden. Um, again, almost like Linklater saying, now, okay, we're going to pivot into the movie that I actually, you know, that you expect to see from me. Um, which is not to say that I think the two narratives are, like, not connected with each other. I think when they do tie back in at the end, it it makes sense but it is just funny the way it opens up with you know what you think uh, you know is is going to be something very different and maybe what some people who aren't as familiar with Linklater's work expected from this movie just from like the log line and then it pivots into you know something completely different but i think the movie is just incredibly charming um again it's it's very consistent with the themes that I find very compelling in Linklater's work and which make him one of my favorite filmmakers. Um, 
And, you know, again, that's the idea of, again, the mundane and sublime sort of interacting with each other and the way that he portrays the space race and the idea of going to space, ultimately in the end, as something that is, you know, no more meaningful or, you know, incredible, meaningful to this young boy as the TV shows that he was watching or, you know, going to the pool during the summer and these details that he describes with such specificity, right? Like, you know, that they are just pulled from real life. Um, It's incredible how specific some of these details and moments are. There's a scene where they go to Astro World towards the end and his description of like this uh, flume ride is it's incredible. Like, I mean, um, I just love watching that stuff. And so I think I think your mileage may vary on this one more than some of those other Hangout movies that I've described, which I think are probably more conventionally enjoyable. This one, I think, will your enjoyment level will depend on how much like you connect with Linklater, how, how much you um, want to see Richard Linklater, you know, reliving his own childhood. Um, on screen like it it obviously means a lot to me because i love richard linklater i'm fascinated by him as a person and his life and the things that made him who he is and i think that's an aspect too of like his development the development of stan as being like a storyteller and the development of richard linklater as being a storyteller i think are dovetailing here um if if you are you know if that's something that you find fascinating then I think you will get a lot out of this movie. I certainly did. If you are looking for something that is, you know, funny and has like all the character, memorable characters and everything that, uh, you know, Dazed and Confused or Everybody Wants Some has, I don't know that that is quite what you're getting here. But as a thematic exercise, as a visual exercise, as a, you know, look at this very meaningful developmental time in the life of a major American filmmaker. Um, Just, I was just, I just loved watching to see like the sort of things that made him tick and the sort of things that from a young age, he was really latching onto because even with boyhood and, you know, boyhood dazed and confused, everybody wants some, they're not really about, I mean, they're somewhat inspired by Linklater's own experiences, certainly, but like, this is the movie I feel like, which is most, you know, directly drawn from his own life. Um, and so as someone who really is very invested, very uh, interested in seeing Richard Linklater's own life, uh, the, by the story of his own life, then yes, I was, I was obviously fascinated to watch it. Obviously not the stuff about him going to space. I mean, that's, you know, obviously deviates from his the entire life, hook but, of the movie. <laughs> not about him. Not real. Well, I, I, I definitely don't think that that's the entire hook of the movie. Again, I think, the it's movie, certainly the hook of the very, movie. It's not the only very thing the movie's clearly, about, but it's definitely yeah, the, yeah, it's the yeah, whole yeah. premise of the movie. Sure it is, but I think he is as concerned with that as he is with the real world stuff. Um, the stuff that, again, actually, I feel like comes from his childhood. Um, and all those details, again, I think are, are clearly drawn from real experience. So I loved seeing that part of it. I loved the movie. I think it is very charming and engaging on it conventional level even if you don't have the connection to link later that i have but i think if you do it it takes it to another level so i loved it yeah i i do wonder if this is like another one of those netflix movies that people turn on and like then like turn off 45 minutes in honestly like i I don't think that it's conventional in terms of its storytelling i think that yeah 
I don't think that this movie is for everyone. I think this is like one of those like, like honestly, this is like a weird Netflix like project, and they do a couple of these every single year. Um, and I think this is their one for this year, and it wouldn't surprise me if you know this film never trends in Netflix's top ten, for example. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, that's what? neither here nor there, though. It's not like it's a badge of honor yeah. to be trending in Netflix's top ten. Um, Netflix, to, to be fair, Netflix has done absolutely nothing to promote that this movie exists and is, is even out there. Like you'd be forgiven for not knowing that this movie is out there. I, I had to search for it when I went to it on the day that it came out, like on that Friday. It was not on the front page. It was not anywhere in the you know recommended categories. So I think they know that this is for a very particular audience. And that's unfortunate that they have. Well, I would know, actually say that the, seeing, wa- trying to watch it on the first day is you have the least chance for it to be like served to you because like not a lot of people have watched yet. So it's not trending on Netflix, et cetera. I actually find it when you go the first day, something comes out, you're, it's the least you have the least chance of finding it. It's like a couple days after, right? When people have discovered it or it's been served. Or, Seems counterproductive, but you might be right. Yeah. Well, I don't know. M- more people are watching movies probably on Saturday and Sunday than on Friday. But I take your point. Um, I, 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 I mean, I, I, your algorithm, it's so like finely tailored. Um, you would think that like, unless you've watched a bunch of Richard Linklater movies on Netflix, like how do they know you want a Richard Linklater movie and you have all the, the Blu-rays and stuff, I, I presume at this point. So it's not like you're popping them on, you know, Netflix or even if they're on Netflix, I have no idea. The point is, is that I think the Netflix algorithm is like so specific and so weird that I, I, I hesitate to attribute them no, I mean, like, I don't know. They, they just like Netflix just doesn't advertise things very much. Like they just use organic word of mouth on their platform. It's like kind of strange. But at the same time, if that were true, that they invested less money in advertising, I'd kind of understand that. This is a weird. This is like I said, I think this is a bit of a weird movie. It's a non-traditional animated film, which again, Netflix. This is a good thing. I think like Netflix has been very supportive of what I'd see like as non-traditional animation. So things like Rotoscope. I think that the animation style for things like Klaus um and well, the french one i always forget the name of the one with the hand the disembodied hand and stuff oh um, yeah i can't remember i can't remember the, the name of it um but that like that i think that they've been very supportive of, of being ex, you know doing creative stuff with animation in the past and i think this is another example of that i think it's such a particular story i i enjoyed this film not not as much as you did from what I heard because I, I did find certain parts of the, of the film to drag. Um, I also don't think that I got the same things out of watching this film. I don't think that I, I think m- maybe he is concerned with the stuff around the, the invent, like this invented story that he has. Um, I'm, I'm not disputing that. I, I just wonder if he's, I, I, I like, I wonder if the, the made up story of Apollo 10 and a half, isn't also a metaphor for like a lot of the things that he, that he tells, like all you, you talk about all these other movies that, that at least reference like themes, right. Or, or are inspired by events of his own life. Not that they're trying to retell things that happened in his real life, but they are certainly inspired by them, like inspired by the nostalgia he felt for high school, inspired by the nostalgia he felt for college, um, you know, inspired by the experiences he was having as, as a father with boyhood. Um, and I kind of wonder if this film is like doing something with that and saying, you know, I like I obviously made this story off about Apollo 10 and a half. Um, and a lot of that is based on nostalgia, right? Like, I mean, I have a lot of theories about like what 
what the actual role of the story is in, in like the context of the movie. Um, but I guess my, my brain just went a different direction because, you, you know, if Apollo 10 and a half is made up, why is any of the things that he's telling, is that any less real um, or any less fake than, than that story, depending on which way you look at it, I guess. And I wonder if he's sort of analyzing that, like this film is just more about nostalgia and, and feelings um, about things 30, 40 years past than it is about actual experiences. And I think maybe it's asking a question of like, do actual experiences versus like the nostalgia you feel or the emotions you have related to something really matter? Yeah. Um, like the difference yeah, well, the things doesn't matter. Certainly that's, you know, sentiment is expressed there at the end, at the, at the very end, um, after he's gone to bed, basically after watching the moon landing on TV and well, he didn't watch the moon landing on TV. Well, yeah, his mother says something like, um, you know, it doesn't matter if he, if he uh, didn't see it, he'll pretend like he did in the, you know, in the future, he'll, he'll tell the story as if he did. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And I, and I think that, oh, and, and my whole thing, I mean, I guess we're sort of just jumping, to, jumping into that, I guess. But my whole theory on that is that, I mean, in the context of the movie, he's made up this story to explain why it didn't matter that he slept through the moon landing. Like, that's why he's made up this Apollo 10 and a half story. And he's yeah. telling, it, telling it later because he's like, oh, it didn't matter because I went to the moon even before these guys did. Um, and, and so I just kind of wonder what, how that reflects on other aspects of the story he's telling, particularly in Apollo 10 and a half, but also other other stories that he's told as well. Um, again, I think this is different because I think it's trying to play itself off as something that's more clearly directly inspired, at least certain events um, in, in his life. Like like you said, I don't disagree with that. But I just I, I guess I was more fixated on, on that point than it is than whether he was saying one thing is more and is as important as this other like thing. I guess I just like didn't really get that out of the film at all. And I was much more intrigued about the different perspective about what he's saying about his own, the actual stories that he's telling. Yeah. Well, I think there's something to be said for the fact that after this, you know, th they sit there and the whole moon landing and whatnot happens on TV. And then number one, he falls asleep. Number two, his siblings all just kind of get up and go to bed like, Oh yeah, you know, it happened or whatever. Yeah, I think, I think the role of the TV is kind of important to the whole thing too. Sure. Cause you know, they're yeah. watching shows on TV all the time. Basically the moon landing ends up coming off as another TV show, basically that just I mean, like it is the a TV show, they're, right? Well, they're watching. Yeah, sure. Sure. Um, but I think th there's something to be said for the fact that that's how they view it. Right. That um, it, it, while the parents are sitting there and seeing it as this, you know, huge thing that like this monumental moment in history to the kids, the ones growing up, it's just another show like many of the others that they were watching on TV. And they're probably not going to remember this moment um, any more than they remember a lot of the other stuff again, like the little stuff that he's um depicting throughout the movie um yeah maybe i, I, don't, I don't know if i agree with that the last the last part of that the conclusion you're drawing from that but like i don't know like we we remember the big moments in our lives more than we do the smaller moments and i think that has to do with like explicit explicit events versus feelings right i think that, i mean that's what I'm, i think that's what i think i'm trying to say is that like yes there's a lot of specificity in what he's describing but is any of that real or is that just like the feelings that he has associated with childhood? I mean, I think the I think the lines are blurred. I think there are certainly 
very real things that he is depicting here. Um, again, like uh, the Astro World ride and whatnot, like I'd be surprised if those are just like things that he manufactured. Sure, it's possible. I, again, um, I'm not. I'm not saying he's making. St- again, I'm not saying he's making stuff up. I'm saying he's picking pieces out of childhood and slotting them into a specific place in a story that's like not actually how it happened in real life. And, and like we do that all the time. Like that we misremember things. It's not, it's not, it's not even a big deal. I'm not even saying it is, but I, 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 I don't, I don't think that the movie convinced me in saying that like, he's going to remember, you know, the day, like the, the, the day before or whatever, Apollo 11 landed more than the, I mean, he's not gonna remember cause he was freaking sleeping. Like, <laughs> but I don't know if there's like landmark moments in his, in like your life, right. That you remember more than, than others. And I don't know if that, I, that's where I, yeah, I, get, I don't know See, the nostalgia. Element. I don't think I think Linklater would disagree would disagree with that. Like, again, I think a lot of his movies are about how that's not really or at least the person that you become is more as a result of these little moments than it but is. But that's not what I'm I'm not disagreeing with that, though. I'm just I'm just I'm just disagreeing with the idea that there aren't things that you remember more than others. Not that certain things like smaller things don't influence you more than others. Yeah, maybe it's not that you won't remember it. It's just, again, that it's not going to be as meaningful to you as it was to other generations. It's not going to be as meaningful to you as, like, again, some of this other stuff, like listening to the records in the living room or, um, Mm -hmm. you know, all the other little things. I mean, there's so many, like eating the Frito pies when they're at the the pool. Um, You know, it's all kind of maybe to your point, part of the story that he's created, but it's also part of reality and dreams, fantasies blurring together. And sure. Maybe the rose colored glasses to some extent that you put on when remembering this time. But I, I still think that it's, I still consider it to be a very personal story. And I still think the details are ripped from real life. Yes, sure. I again, I'm not saying that that he's manufacturing stories to tell in this one. Besides, like the obvious one, I just think that it's not as it's not as linear to say that like that to me. And maybe this is semantics, and maybe it's just like whatever. But it's not clear to me that like what like the story that's being told is what happened in real life. Any of it, not that that they weren't real experiences that happened at other points in different times being pulled together into a story and again i'm not even trying to talk about the meta-ness of it all like of course this is not exactly how the summer of 1969 like went for rich for like Linklater. he's like he's making a movie like he's telling a story he's writing a screenplay. Yeah. play but i'm saying like even in stanley's life like even if you don't like take out the meta part of it i'm not convinced the movie is trying to really tell you that this is actually what happened in stanley's life any of it either that that there are moments and there are feelings and there's nostalgia associated with all these things but that that's where i'm saying like it's not what like what's real and what's like a feeling or a memory like what's more important right like that, i think that's what maybe the film is asking maybe that's a better way to put yeah i don't think i disagree with any of that yeah um uh, well we've talked a lot about the story and and moments and very in, in sort of like a voiceover narration style kind of like a memoir um my, was it milo something that plays the young version did i am i remembering Honestly, don't know. Yeah, I mean, look, yeah, Milo Coy, no idea who this guy is. Probably has never done anything before knowing Linklater's history of just picking people out of the crowd, more or less, to, to be in his films. But he, he played the young version of Stanley in those specific moments where his voice came out on screen. But did any part of the voice cast stick out or any part that you want to talk about? Or 
kind of like you were referencing at the beginning of the movie. It's like, it's not really why you, it's not what you're going to take away from this film is the voice cast really. Yeah. I mean, I think Jack Black does a good job. Like it's very heavily narrator driven. Like uh, yeah. that's, that's why I think uh, to some extent you have to, you know, it, to, if you're going to appreciate the movie, like on the level that I did, like you have to have some appreciation of Linklater because it almost is like you're reading a diary or something that he has sketched out um when you're listening to jack black just you know recounting all these things just listing things at times just listing the tv shows and listing the bands and um, just all the things that kind of made up this era i think um again your mileage may vary on just hearing jack black list off a bunch of stuff if you don't have the connection to Linklater's films or if you weren't alive during that time period again I kind of wonder what my parents would think of this movie because they grew up they're basically the same age as Richard Linklater so they were like the same age as this as Stan was when the moon landing when all this was going on um so I wonder kind of what their reaction would be to it um because obviously I can't relate to that piece of it but I can relate to the Linklater side of it. So, um, you know, I think the narration is is good. Like, I mean, it was engaging. Um, it didn't take me out of the movie or anything. Like, I just... Well, the movie kind of is the, the narration and the animation, right? It's less yeah. the voice work being done. That, I guess maybe that's my point. Like, it's like you're being read a story that is being animated on screen, essentially. And yeah, yeah the, there is voice casting within the story, but really that's that's filler almost and the narration is the is the meat of it yeah again which maybe goes to the points that we're discussing about how rather than you know us watching the characters interact with each other yeah. um maybe as it actually happened it's more about the narrator's view of what went on which may or may not um ha- be 100 percent authentic yeah yeah, I think that's I think that's very fair. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, there's not really much in the cast that sticks out. Like I enjoyed, you know, hearing Glenn Powell, um, you know, who I'm a fan of, who I, I'm just like kind of in shock that he's not in more things, although I know he's going to be in Top Gun 2 mm-hmm. coming out soon. I guess Top Gun Maverick, sorry, um, coming coming out soon. But yeah, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed Zachary Levi. Like I enjoy all the people that I recognized in the cast. Just, um, you know, not the most memorable. And, you know, Jack Black was was fine. I thought I didn't. I guess in, in in normalizing for my experiences with voiceover and whether when I like them, I, th- I thought he was better than average, but it's still not my preferred way to. I was going to say, I, I, I really was wondering when I was watching it, what you were going to think. Cause I was like, this movie is basically all voiceover. Like, yeah, I, but like, look, I think it's, I think it's fine. Like I don't need to rehash my philosophy on voiceover in, in, in movies, but I think that this doesn't fall into the trap that, one of the most like uh, like the most egregious offenders do like whenever I think of like what like if someone were to ask me like what is the worst version of voiceover narration just go watch the first scene of Aquaman that's like the worst yeah, version Aquaman, yeah. of voiceover narration in a film I've ever witnessed it is so awful there's other ones too like it's not the only example but that, that that's a good one just like when someone's just narrating to you exactly what you see on the screen and I think that movie the movie this movie does do that at times but it has a thematic purpose to it. I think, it has a thematic purpose. And also it's saying. oftentimes giving you a little bit more detail or a little bit more. What's the right word? Like interiority. Yeah. yeah. To the film. Like it's giving you more of stands. 
I mean, it's Stan, like it is Stan narrating it, right? And it's a story about him. So he's giving you a little bit more texture, interiority, however you want to describe it to to what's actually happening, what's he's, what he's feeling. And I think that's where I sort of get the richness. And I, and I think that you're absolutely right. That goes to the points that I was making earlier, um, referencing those again, just the idea that the telling of the story is a really critical detail of the film. Like it is a critical element of, of the film yeah. because you have to, you have to, again, like, I think you just have to know that like this person is recalling something from decades ago. And you have to think about that when you're watching the film to, I mean, at least I had to think I, I couldn't help but think about that as I was watching the film. So it was a big part for me for that. So I think that was, look, it, it wasn't, it wasn't my favorite thing to, to listen to voiceover narration for an hour, like a hundred minutes or whatever, but I don't think it fell into the trap of, what some other films have, have done with that, and especially ones that overuse voiceover narration. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. Cool. I mean, and then I, I think the last thing that I really just want to talk about before we wrap things up, and I, I mean, you're welcome to, to throw out other stuff you'd like to talk about as well, but it's just the animation style. You, you talked a little bit about it at the beginning. I thought it was amazing. Like, again, I know that this is a bit of a hybrid there. Again, I, I haven't seen a scanner darkly or, um the other one whose name waking is waking life waking life so i don't know how this varies from that it sounds like it does make sense but knowing that like you know they they you know most everything in this like all the scenes i believe were shot in live action and then it was animated over yeah. there was a rotoscope animated over with with additional animation of objects um put into the film, obviously, because some of it takes place in space. Like they're not obviously they're not filming mm -hmm. space. They're using green screens. They're animating things onto it, etc. So I thought that that worked really well, and I, and I thought for, exactly for this sort of like nostalgic, sort of trip down memory lane that the film is. I thought the animation style worked flawlessly for that. I think that you were talking at the beginning about how it really lends to the vibe of the film. It really enhances a lot of that maybe texture that we're referring to. And I a hundred percent agree with that. I think that that's absolutely right. I think, you know, I was reading where early on in, in the pre-production process, when he's writing the script, when he's sort of imagining the film, he was thinking about just filming the, the, the movie in live action, just doing it in live action and, and doing it that way. I don't think the movie would have been, would have been as good that way. Frankly, I think that it's better for having been animated with this particular, um, in this particular style. I think that really works well and it really enhances a lot of the good things about the film. It sounds like you agree from what you mentioned earlier, but if you want to add anything, go for it. Yeah. I don't know. I think I kind of said my piece on it earlier, but yeah, again, we're talking about how the movie is blending, you know, fantasy and reality, blending nostalgia, rose colored glasses with what actually happened. And yeah. I think that, is also true in the animation to some extent. And I don't know. I just, I, I thought it was just on, on a very basic level and a surface level. It was cool to look at. It was cool to see like familiar figures like Walter Cronkite, right? Doing sure. the news report of the moon landing, but in this heavily animated style that like kind of makes you question for a second, what am I looking at here? Um, what were you looking at Scott? I was looking at Walter Cronkite. Um, but yeah, so so I mean, I think it again, it works perfectly for the story that he's trying to tell, though. It's not just a aesthetic choice to be like, oh, that was cool, right? Like, it, that's not the only appeal of it. It also serves a real purpose, which 
like just like we were saying with the the narration these are things that could just be used as clunky devices to like give yourself give give your movie something to you know something unique about it or something to talk about um but you know Linklater is such a skilled filmmaker that he knows how to use all of these different tools to ultimately drive towards this, the the point that he's trying to get across with you know the story this the dialogue the characters um the more yeah. traditional elements yeah agreed anything else you want to talk about before wrapping up um i don't guess so i mean i again i really recommend people to go out there and, and watch this movie um because i don't know how many people know that it's out there on netflix um it's not going to be the adventure movie that you might think again from reading the log line um but again as a sort of look inside the brain of a you know very significant american filmmaker um i think you know anyone who appreciates movies um should appreciate the opportunity to see something like that so um, on that level, I, I yeah. hope that people will check it out. Yeah, for sure. All right. Favorite scene or moment from Apollo 10 and a half, a space age childhood. Yeah, I think it's probably the, I mean, the soundtrack in general is just awesome. Um, you know, this, the 60 sounds that he captures, um, are, you know, I love that era of music and there's just some great needle drops throughout. Um, so that's a definite highlight. Um, I guess for me, again, I, I just go back to the, the whole, I mean, the whole last 20 minutes or so, starting with them, you know, basically the father pitches to them, oh, do you want to go to Astro World or do you want to, you know, stay home and watch the moon landing or whatever? And they're like, oh, we want to go to Astro World again because they're kids. Um, and seeing all that played out, um, you know, the specificity of what he shows there and then that um you know coalescing with the moon landing going on and you know they're on the roller coaster and they're you know going past each other like oh hey the they did it they landed on the moon and whatever um i think it's a cool also moment of just like historical context and you know again watching the walter cronkite report and all that um, i think he does a really good job of contextualizing what this meant to people especially in this very specific community of Houston where like everyone is kind of associated with NASA in some respect, like your, your family works there, or, you know, you live close by, it's just a part of everyone's life. So I think he does a really good job of showing how that permeated everyone's lives uh, for, you know, this brief time in summer of 69. And uh, so I like the whole Astro World sequence and getting to see people reacting to that. Um, as juxtaposed with like, again, this uh, activity, which as a kid going to, you know, Astroworld could be like your own moon landing in a way like this, you know, transcendent memorable experience of going to an amusement park. Yeah. So, so much of the film runs together. It's, it's, I think it's one of those movies that we come across every once in a while where it's like hard to pick a particular moment because of that, where it, the moments don't necessarily really feel that discreet. There are a few, and I think Astral World's one of them. Um, but but they're like it really blends together smoothly um in the film. I think if I had to pick one as well, I'd probably pick one of the one of the first scenes in the film when he's taken out of the 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 playground or whatever and he's brought into the 
to the school office and talks to the NASA officials or recruiters or whatever agents. I don't even know what you'd call them. Um, I thought that that was pretty cool. And then the I think the comedy in that is, you know, it is one of the instances of the comedy, really, I think, working in the movie as well with Glenn Powell and Zachary Levi and just riffing off of each other. There's still funny moments, even though, like, it's not as funny as Linklater can be. Yeah. Um, there's good humor throughout, like the, you know, pointing out the hippies and everything walking down <laughs> the street was good, too. Yeah. Um, so it, it's a it's a good natured movie like it is. I would describe it as a feel good movie, ultimately, in the end. Like, I, I think it leaves you with, you know, good in good spirits after it's over. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I again, I, I think your point about your mileage varying is very true. I mean, sure. I think it's worth worth noting that we're, you know, two white guys who grew up in the South. Um, not that we grew up in the 60s, but, you know, it's it, we sort of are closer to the target audience maybe than a lot of people might be um in that in that sense so yeah i, I mean i i don't yeah it, it's not a dazed and confused again where i think this movie is gonna like transcend all of that stuff that you're talking about there and just be yeah. an all-time classic so um i do think mileage will vary in in that regard but give it a chance again like if you appreciate richard linklater on any level like this is a great opportunity to um you know watch what he does best i think play play in his home sandbox what about the people who think where'd you go bernadette's his best movie you think they'll enjoy uh, this well one? that that's alonzo duralde and i can't help him no I, is it actually oh my god no no no. he doesn't think it's his best i, I was gonna say alonzo is actually a big supporter of richard linklater so i don't mean to to down talk him and he loved apollo ten and a half as well um but he he did think where'd you go bernadette was very underrated which look i'll go i'll go far for link later but it was just all right like that movie was just all right it's it's okay to admit that sometimes your favorite filmmakers make movies that are just all right and link later has done that but when he hits like he does here it's higher than anybody can hit yeah yeah i think it's just a, I, it's, a, it's an example of him you know he needs to he probably like his best movies are ones that that are original in the sense that he's they are coming out of him, not yeah. being adapted out of, a, of. I don't even know if he wrote Where'd You Go, Bernadette, but it's he certainly didn't. It was based come on up with the story. Yeah, but like he could have wrote yeah. the screenplay. Yeah, I think I think maybe he didn't. No, I think I think I think he had a different screenwriter for that. I don't think it was him. So, yeah, I think, yeah. again, with the exception of maybe School of Rock, which like was Mike White who wrote it. Um, yeah, but obviously Mike White not being a nobody uh, when it comes to, to screenwriting. I think you're right. The like the stuff that, you know, does the best that is the best. In addition to being like these hangout vibes movies, is also the stuff that he writes. Yeah. Agreed. All right, Scott. Out of ten, what are you giving Apollo ten and a half? I mean, I give it a nine point five. Um, I'm you know probably going to be higher on it than most people sure. are, but it's you know impossible to you know divorce my connection to Linklater as an artist from. Sure. You know, the personal film that I think we got here. Yeah, I mean, it's inevitable. Not not surprised there. A 7.7 .7 for me, double sevens for for Richard Linklater from myself. I, I think, you know, I had a really good time with it. I think the animation is like an absolute highlight of the film for sure. I think it left me with plenty to think about as I sort of espoused at the beginning of the review. But at the same time, I do think that it does drag a, a little bit just sort of functionally. 
um, the the middle part. I don't want to just say the middle part because I think it's a little bit more specific than that. There's there's parts, you know, specific sections of the of the film that I think are just a little bit slow and and did lose me a little bit, uh, lose my attention at least. But overall, strong film, definitely closer to a return to form than um, than we got in Where'd You Go, Bernadette. So. I think that should do it for our discussion of Apollo 10 and a half, a space age childhood. Let's take a short break. When we return, we'll be talking about something that I don't think, I don't think anyone who sees this movie will, will have their attention lost during, during this film. We're going to be talking very briefly about ambulance. And then we'll be talking about a couple pieces of news that have happened in like the 20 months since we did a news segment. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. We mentioned it before the break, Scott, and we just had a lengthy debate about Michael Bay during the break. But he had a movie come out this past weekend called Ambulance, a little film called Ambulance. The cheapest film he's made in in a very long time, only cost $40 million, obviously known for the Transformers movies most recently, but had sort of like 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 classic 90s hits like Armageddon, The Rock, the first couple bad boys movies, although I, I guess those weren't in the nineties, but um, the first one yes, yeah. the fir- was the first one like 99. Okay. The second one was definitely in the, 2000s. no, the bad boys came out in 1995. Was that his first movie? That was his first movie. Wasn't it? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, anyway, classic early classics uh, of a sort um, has gone down a very particular career path in making high budget action films. He's a uh, known Scott for uh, his explosions, I believe. I think that I think that people say that about him. I think that's fair to say. Not as many as you would think in this movie. I, I, this film was really forty sold. million, probably. Yeah, I mean, this film was really sold to me as like you have to go see this in the theater for the explosions. Disagree. That's why. That's really? not why somebody you sold go. that. So, sold it to you like that? Wow. Okay, yeah, I, that's definitely. I'm exaggerating a little bit in terms of sold. But like when I okay. heard someone like a short review of it, it was like you have to see this in a theater. Like the explosions are great. And like, I, like it was the person taking the piss. Like, I don't actually know because there's explosions in the movie, but there's not that many explosions in the movie. And it's certainly not why I'd recommend you go see this this film in a theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's plenty of other reasons I'd recommend you go see this film in a theater, Scott. But why don't you talk first? Why would you recommend someone go see this film in a theater? It's just a ton of fun. And like, it is a nonstop thrill ride for for the most part. Like the movie is like two hours and 16 minutes or something. And, you know, there may be a couple segments that are, you know, a a little long in the tooth. But, like, for the most part, I was hooked. Um, And and, because the movie just doesn't slow down. Like, it has insanely frenetic pacing, like, to match with the, you know, frenetic pace of the ambulance, of the titular ambulance in the film. Um, And I just, I don't know. I think I really appreciate something that has that much forward momentum. Um, that never slows down to take a breath. I think it's able to extend out a lot longer than it might have been because it um, is so relentless and assaultive, which we, of course we expect that from Michael Bay. I just think maybe he's made some poor choices with 
the films he's decided, or the projects he's decided to take on. I don't think he should have made five Transformers movies. I don't think he should have gone down Ryan Reynolds' Netflix hell and made six underground. Uh, In many ways, started the Ryan Reynolds Netflix hell. I think that was like one of the first yeah. ones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think this shows that when he like has less to work with here in a way, like he has a, he has a lower budget. Like he, like you said, he $40 million. He has a very simple premise, right? These people are in an ambulance and they have hostages and they have a lot of money and they're trying to get away because I mean, it's, it's a very classic action movie setup. I mean, you know, it's, this thing is borrowing from speed and it's borrowing from unstoppable and it's borrowing, um, you know, I don't want to flatter it too much by naming some other great LA crime movies, like, you know, some, some of Michael Mann stuff, but like he's influenced by them. Like there's no doubt that he's influenced. You cannot make a, a movie in LA anymore where somebody commits a crime that is not influenced by heat. Like I firmly believe that, yeah. but, uh, and, and I think ambulance is no exception, but this movie is on cocaine um, for pretty much the whole time. And I mean that in, in several different ways. One of them is uh, the camera, which, you know, again, he does not hold on a shot probably for more than three seconds in this entire movie. Like it's just, you know, frenetic shaking around. It's up in everyone's faces. Like oh it is God. clearly trying to yeah. put you in the moment. Um, it's it's very loud, even though there are not explosions. The music is very loud by Lauren Balfe, Jake Gyllenhaal, who is playing uh, the one of the three leads here Durant. is very loud. He's Psychotic pretty much nonstop man. yelling the whole movie. <laughs> yeah. And it's great. Like, I'm sorry, but it's great. Like, again, this movie knows what it is. And that was what was great about The Rock, right? Which is, you know, uh, another Michael Bay movie that I really enjoy. Um, that movie knows what it is. It's just campy. It's over the top. It's goofy. I mean, this movie has Jake Gyllenhaal getting covered in fire extinguisher dust and yelling that his sweater is cashmere and it's going to get damaged. They have they stopped to sing along to Sailing by Christopher Cross at one that point. That was so in the, random. In the ambulance. <laughs> like, what is um, happening? Also, <laughs> Jake Gyllenhaal has a line at one point where he's like, somebody says, uh, like, I don't want to do this, or I, I don't, or he's like, and I don't want to have herpes, but that's yeah. just how life works out. We no, we 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 play the hand we're dealt. I think is is what he said or something like. Yeah, Isaac Gonzalez um, is saying she didn't want to. She didn't want to do some sort of surgery. I don't know. The whole surgery scene yeah. is just incredible. The surgery scene was electric. Like they're doing <laughs> doing a FaceTime surgery in the back of. I mean, I was laughing out loud. Oh like, yeah, iPad, I was when the, when the iPad happened. dies. Like right as she's like pulled the spleen out of the guy and is holding it there, and they're like, "Do not rupture it, or he will bleed out." And then the then iPad just dies. And yeah. then, yeah, well, I don't want to spoil too much again, but um, sorry. Wow. I, I, I mean, I, I had a great time with the movie again. I think everyone understood the assignment, including Michael Bay with his ridiculous drone shots and um, like the random side characters that just show up. Like there's Poppy, who's like the drug oh, lord. Poppy. There's um, Wale, who is playing the personal assistant of, uh, yeah. of uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character. Um, there's Garrett Dillahunt, who I thought was a hoot as like this cop who just walks around in USC gear the whole time, looking like a football coach. I think he's like and, he's like a captain or whatever. Like, yeah, he's like he's like he's like yeah, he's like the head of, and he's walking around in, like a USC Trojans shirt in the middle of like this gigantic bank robbery, like 
well, the cop, cop dying, like just, you know, this circus that has shut down basically all of downtown LA. Um, and the entire setup of the movie is so funny of like, Yaya just goes to ask Jake Gyllenhaal for a loan. And Jake Gyllenhaal is like, oh yeah, we're going to be doing this. We're going to be uh, doing this bank robbery in like 10 minutes. We're going to be stealing $32 million. We'll be Pop doing it in. live. Yeah. It's, it's actually quite fortuitous that you're here because you're such a great driver um so just hop in it'll be cool we're gonna get but he wasn't supposed to be the driver no he wasn't but now but then when he's there it's like hey you're a great driver which he is he just randomly knows all the streets of la not explained at all why he knows all the streets of la and he's a great driver it's awesome like i i wish more action movies had the uh you know sensibilities to be this silly to be this frenetic to just go for it and just have a fun time again like i i feel like there's just been some movies in you know going back to last year but even in the first part of this year that are just like named directors just having having a laugh having a good time i would put kimmy in there i would put x in there which we just watched a couple weeks ago um and i i personally love seeing that because i think genre cinema nowadays is getting a little too bland with all the franchises yeah the the film i was screaming perhaps i felt like i was screaming for like half the movie i mean just losing it in this theater like just absolutely wild film i don't know that i would call it a good movie it's like it's a fine movie but i had a great time i really would liken it to like something like Moonfall. I think the film's a lot better than Moonfall. Oh, God, but like, yeah. but the experience that I had watching Moonfall, it was of a similar vibe. Will you acknowledge that the movie, for what it is trying to do, is very successful at what it is trying to do? Yeah, no, I think that and then and I think that's the difference with like Moonfall mm-hmm. ultimately, like I, I do think that I am laughing with the movie when I'm watching Ambulance. I am laughing Absolutely. at the movie. Yeah when I'm watching Moonfall. Yes, like, I don't 100%. think Roland Emmerich isn't on the joke. Um, I do think Michael Bay isn't on the there joke. There are so many things in this movie that are just jokes, like, that yeah, are yeah, explicit yeah. jokes. Like, it's not just that, like, what is happening is kind of funny on some level. It's like that there are literally jokes in the script. Like, Yeah, yeah that's true. Isaac Gonzalez, who you failed to min- completely failed to mention in this film, is just, like, walking around, like, boss-bitching everyone yeah, in the good. film, even though she's a hostage. She's just, like, just totally just destroying people left and right and i'm like you're a hostage what are you doing um but it was really funny i look the ending sucked <laughs> the ending was awful in my opinion. it was I the thought, classic cheesy ending though of like terrible. These, that the, these movies have i mean con air we forget ends with nicholas cage like coming out of the plane with um whatever that song how can i breathe without you playing as he walks up to his wife and hand hands the bunny like the dirty bunny that he's been holding on to for the whole uh movie like it's just it's it's what these movies do uh it's just it, it is pure cheese and like yeah what happens with isa gonzalez's character like the um change that she undergoes over the oh course of the movie um it, her change in philosophy of, of life of, uh, how she how she views life also there's job. this look in like a, a moment between her and like some nurse when she's like going through like patient files at the hospital where she just looks at yeah. the nurse and then I don't even know what was what was non-verbally communicated in that I couldn't I even either, tell you yeah. what, what that was about like I I like it was something Dude, I just don't know what I it was. will say I will say he almost goes into a little bit of anti-police stuff at the very end which was kind of interesting like 
there's a, let's just say there's a character who is in peril and the police do not make an effort to uh to rescue him and very deliberately say that they're we'll get to this person when we can um which yeah. i don't I don't. I thought it was an interesting point. But the, but then it swerves. It goes pro cop at the end. One guy who was like in the ambulance the entire time is like, "He saved me." Oh right, yeah, true. The, the so I don't even. I don't even know what Michael's doing. Yeah. I don't know what he's doing. Well, this film let's, is... let's be honest. He's not. He he doesn't really have any politics that he's putting into his movies. I don't think. But yeah, I think his policies are explosions. More money for more explosions. Um, yeah, and the action is great. Like there, there's some sure some sick action and vehicle stunts and stuff like that yeah jake gyllenhaal is carving out this weird part of his career where he's just trying to play psychotic men yeah um it probably started with with nightcrawler though i think that was much more refined performance than this one uh but even like you didn't watch the antoine fuqua movie last year right where he was like a, a police guilty, call center no. the guilty yeah god An, a very similar role of a man in la just screaming constantly um, I mean, nocturnal animals. You look at, um, sure. you look at prisoners. Like he's playing some. He's played some weird dudes. Like well, prison, prisoners is not. I wouldn't put that in. His category. name is Detective Loki. I think he's a little bit of an uh, an off kilter dude. I haven't seen that movie in a while. Yeah, but, I, I need to. Uh, honestly, I need to rewatch uh, that movie. Oh, we also forgot about, of course, Velvet Buzzsaw. Which remember that was a movie. Um, he's just doing he weird was definitely stuff. a weirdo in that movie. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we've obviously forgotten Prince of Persia uh the weirdest one of all yes he was the prince of persia Who could can forget? you believe it a white man the prince but of look, persia this movie did not do well in theaters unfortunately i, I do know. think it deserves to be seen in theaters however if you don't if you can't see it in theaters scott is probably right that it will be on peacock in like a couple months no it's not even right it's it's like the it's the pay one policy it's the 45 days Okay. Um, well, it will be on Peacock then, yes. and you should watch it there at the very least because it is a very fun time, in my opinion. I could be wrong, Scott. I think this film's going to kill on Peacock. I think this film's going to absolutely rip on Peacock. Sure, I hope so. Yeah, the, the, this movie deserves to be on a streaming service. Since if no Michael Bay is going there. to keep making movies, let's put it this way, he needs to make them like this, and not he does not need to get lost in joining a franchise like transformers or trying to create a franchise which he was probably trying to do with six underground i mean i think netflix certainly wanted it to be a franchise i can't speak to the success of that since yeah i don't it was widely panned i believe by critics. i don't hear anything more about it yeah no one's talking about um two two sequels shot Se simultaneously nobody's talking about when seven underground is coming out yeah no one's yeah no, no one's talking about red notice uh, red notice two and three style over there, which they're shooting. Yeah, Ryan Reynolds has got way too many other. I mean, we got yeah, the Adam Project. I'm sure we're gonna have Free Guy too. I'm sure we're gonna have Adam Project too, and we know we're gonna have Red Notice too. So and three, Red Notice two and three. They're filming simultaneously. Right, yeah. Um, but that's what you get, I guess. With look, look, this film was shot on a modest budget for Michael Bay. I mean, The Rock cost more money than this movie. I, like, I'm yeah. not even. This might be the cheapest movie he's ever made. I don't they know. They blew up I, Alcatraz. <laughs> touche all right fine um but like like i can't think of like bad boys probably cost more money than this right like maybe not the first one maybe that's maybe that's what it is maybe not the first one armageddon certainly cost more than this all the transformers movie cost like 10 times this um so i don't know what the benghazi movie or whatever costs that probably didn't cost very much that was like a weird movie because they used didn't they use like real people or something wasn't it like a 15 17 to paris <laughs> style yeah. thing where they used like that 
some like non-actors. Yeah, I, I do think it was something like that. I mean, that movie got a lot, got a lot of, got a lot of flack. I think yeah. for the obvious socio-political context of the film, um, not not unlike fifteen seventeen to Paris, probably. Yeah, bastardizing but, this real event, probably. Yeah, I'm just looking at the at the budget. No, that movie had more budget than this than this one did. Pain and Gain. I'm going through the filmography live, Scott. Okay, that film only cost twenty million dollars. That film was less expensive. Well, the movie looks great. All I will say is, for forty million, the movie does look really good. Um, like there weren't there weren't any moments where I was like, oh, this looks cheap. Yeah, uh, agreed. I think that he got his money's worth. I mean, someone gave him a drone for like Christmas and he just lost his mind with it in this film. And the movie takes place. OK, I have to comment on this because I'm always commenting on the other part. The movie takes place in the daylight. It is in the daylight. I loved it. You yeah. can see what is happening. You you can see what is happening in the sense that the lighting is good. You can't necessarily see what is happening in the sense of the that the camera work. is just yeah, yeah. going crazy. For I mean, some of those stuff. drone shots like literally made me ill um yeah. like they made me a little bit queasy <laughs> he needed to calm down a little bit i mean so soderbergh kept it refined for kimmy michael bay lost his mind the 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 first like in the when they're in the garage and they're about to like go on the bank robbery or whatever he is just like and they're having like this really intense conversation he is yeah. just he's spinning, spinning the camera spinning them. <laughs> for it's like no that, reason it's like that car than... scene in waves other just than like... to make you just yeah. feel so much anxiety about what is going to happen and i did so mission yeah, accomplished it worked i mean scott I, I got through i was we got through 50 minutes of this movie they're in the ambulance at this point and i'm like how is there 80 minutes left in this thing how is there 80 minutes and left? then in this poppy movie? showed up and then and then he made a call to poppy um scott the film's too long the film's way too long it should be at least half an hour shorter um it's just i don't i'm not gonna go that far but i agree it could be shorter yeah what a film what a picture all right scott <laughs> news for this it. week uh, you know, we talked already on this podcast about a director who you enjoy very much having a new movie. And I think there's another director who is rumored to have a movie coming out this year as a bit of a surprise. So Scott, want to tell us about that? Yeah. So like maybe like a month ago, um, there was a report coming out. I forget who it was, but it's a creditable source that said there is going to be a secret film at Cannes this year, um, from a major filmmaker, um, so instantly, of course, people started speculating, and one of the names that people were speculating about is David Lynch, um, who, of course, has not made a film in, I believe, we're on going on like 16 years now. Um, Inland Empire was, to, to my memory, the last film that he made. Now, of course, he did make Twin Peaks The Return, which some people would say is a movie. There was an entire bracket on Twitter about, <laughs> is, it, is it a movie or not? Um, but it's not like he's been doing nothing. Um, in addition to his weather reports, of course, every day, he also um, did make Twin Peaks The Return, which was a very massive thing. Um, he had his but, fourth marriage in that time as well. Sure. But film wise, Inland Empire, which is like I still haven't seen it, but is supposedly his most outlandish out there. Like this movie literally makes zero sense movie um, that he's ever made. Do you know who distributed um, Inland Empire? You want to take a guess? Yes. No, no I can't know. remember. You don't know who distributed this movie. There's no way. Absurda. Well, the thing about this movie, too, is apparently, like, the movie was shot in really low quality, and there's never been, like, a good version of it. And there's there's now, like, a 4K transfer that apparently has just come out, and people say it still looks like it's in, like, 480p, basically. That's um, 
but but I think some of that is like intentional. Like again, I think it's part of the weird effect that David Lynch is going for with the movie. But I don't know. I, I'm gonna have to be in the right state of mind if I'm gonna watch that uh, movie. But anyway, all that to say um, that discussing film, which if you're not on film Twitter, it's kind of a weird thing to explain what this is. But they, they just film, they're like fandom. They they just reference other reports, right? Like they're not yeah, actually. But they're like a non-verified themselves. Twitter account that end up breaking a lot of like major stories in the movie world and like going viral with a lot of their tweets um on news that like again even though they're not a verified account like they're i mean the the stuff that they're reporting on is accurate like it's not you know but they're usually just sourcing other people who are reporting information that is true but i don't know i I can't recall the tweet if they were sourcing anyone on this about the, the tweet that they put out yesterday but anyway they put out a tweet yesterday saying it is confirmed that the secret film at Cannes is going to be a David Lynch movie and that Laura Dern is going to appear in some capacity in this movie. Of course, Laura Dern has worked with Lynch multiple times in Land Empire, which I mentioned was a showcase for her. Blue Velvet, his, you know, sort of film that made him famous. Um, she also stars in uh and so that was reported on. And then now today, David Lynch himself has come out and said, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have a film coming out. This is not accurate. Of course, he's going to say that, right? If the idea is that this is supposed to be a secret film, um, then you want to keep the secret, right? Because that's my first reaction to reading Discussing Film Suite is like, well, there's the, there goes the secret. It's not really a secret film anymore, right? Like, if it's a David Lynch... Sure, we don't know anything about... They, they sourced Variety. The the variety okay. maybe initially. Okay, I didn't realize that. But anyways, yes. Before, yeah. we don't know anything about, like, what the movie is about. But, like, we now know that it is a David Lynch film. We now know that it is a Laura Dern, that Laura Dern is in it in some capacity. Like, you know, the secret is gone. The mystery is gone. So I think, if I was David Lynch, of course I would come out and say, no, that this is not the case. Um, cause I want to maintain the mystique and the surprise that he was probably hoping, hoping to maintain if this movie, um, is in fact coming out. I certainly hope it's coming out. Um, I, you know, Twin Peaks is one of my favorite TV shows. Mulholland Drive is in my top 20 movies of all time. I love a lot of his other films. I think he's a very important filmmaker and he's getting up there in age. So I want to see him go out on some high note. Um, you know, with his film career and not Inland Empire, which is just this weird movie that no one has really seen and is not doesn't even have a good quality version in existence, it seems. So I hope that it is true. I hope that the movie is really good. And uh, yeah, it could be a it could be an interesting can with it sounds like David Cronenberg's movie also might be coming out. Uh, Crimes of the Future at, might also be premiering at Cannes. So. Um, if we get the two weird Davids both with movies at Cannes, that would be something to remember. And of course, Lightyear. Yes, no that is also a movie that will be at Cannes. The weird Pixar movie. Yeah, um, the space movie, of course. Yeah, look, I don't care about David Lynch or David Cronenberg. I'll be honest. Uh, I haven't seen any of their work. That's fine. That's not true. You've seen David Cronenberg films, right? Haven't you seen A History of Violence and Eastern Promises? Oh, yeah. I always don't. I don't think of those movies when I think David Cronenberg. That's yeah. true. Um, I don't get the sense that that's going to be you that, only Crimes of the Future. Yeah. Okay. You, you haven't seen enough. If you were to see 
some of Lynch's, you know, works, I think you would feel differently. I'm just not interested in David Lynch's work, honestly. And not even as just an appreciator of film, like he's a significant figure. I mean, look, we all have our personal tastes. He's maybe he's a more accessible of the director in that in that realm of experimental film. But I don't know, like I would not describe him as accessible in, in any uh, but ex more yeah. accessible of experimental filmmakers. I guess who's doing guess experimental just... movies that more accessible than David Lynch? Yeah, Kaufman? I mean, maybe Kaufman? sure. If, if if we're yeah, well, that's that's a good uh, shout. But like, if we're classifying that uh, as accessible, it, insofar as any experimental film is going to be accessible, yes. I well, yeah, that's what I'm talking David about. David Lynch yeah. is, but like, yeah, uh, it's probably still a strong word to say accessible. Because well, like, that's my point, though. Like, I, of the experimental films I've seen, mostly Kaufman. I'm not even interested in those. Like, I don't. I haven't enjoyed most of the Charlie Kaufman movies that I've seen. Why would I enjoy the David Lynch uh, movies? Like, I don't. Know. Well, sure, but you'd say you'd say I'm thinking of anything as good, and I strongly disagree with that. So we can move on. Um, but look, I, yeah, I don't think it's my bag. Like I, I almost saw Mulholland Drive. I do believe I'm going to see Mulholland Drive at some point. Like I, I do you believe that. Um, yeah, I think that's going to happen. I don't know when that's going to be, but I think that's going to happen. But I mean, I, I haven't seen any of their more. Um, I mean, anything that's that's less accessible, probably, right? I haven't seen it. I think History of Violence and Eastern Promises are probably the two most accessible movies of those two directors' filmographies. For sure. Well, that's I would say that David Lynch and The Elephant Man and The Straight Story um, are his two, like, History of Violence or Eastern Promises. Um, sure. A Straight Story is literally a G-rated movie that is on Disney+, Plus, um, and that David Lynch directed. And The Elephant Man is like a biopic of this real guy. So it was, I mean, it's Oscar-nominated, multiple Oscar-nominated movies. Sure. So. But would you say that you understand Lynch filmmaking if you watch those two movies? Probably not. Yeah. So probably not the right movies to watch to get a taste of Not Lynch. comprehensively, at least. <laughs> yeah, certainly not. Uh, anyway, that, look, I'm excited for people who are excited. I'm not trying to like sit here and knock them. I, I have nothing against them. I'm happy that they're making movies. It just this doesn't really do anything for me. That's fine. Um, just like Lightyear doesn't do anything for you, apparently. <laughs> but it does for me. Um, other news story to talk about today. I think, I think Jurassic World or uh, the Crimes of Mumblecore or whatever this movie next week is called. Crimes uh, of Mumblecore. Is, uh, is oh for me. Goodness. I think those are better examples of what of movies that like I just literally couldn't care less about in the same way that it seems like your reaction is towards the lynching Cronenberg stuff. Oh, but I don't really care about the Harry Potter movie next week. <laughs> you don't care about that either. OK, fair enough. No, I don't care about that one either. I, I Scott, I literally write in my notes for later on in this podcast that we're going to watch the final nail in the Wizarding World coffin next week. I mean, it's going to be it's going to be rough. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe not all of maybe not all of the faults of the French of that franchise at this point are, you know, on Warner Brothers, but uh, like maybe Ezra Miller and and I mean, casting Johnny Depp was stupid to begin with, but Ca Ezra Miller has has fallen apart for them. Care I think. Careful, the Johnny Depp fans, if they're listening, you're, the you're not going to make it through yeah. the night. Yeah. <laughs> God, um, sure. I'm sure they're more. They're all in Virginia for the his defamation trial with Amber Heard that's happening right now. Um, so hopefully they're occupied and far away from here. But between that and J.K. Rowling, like lighting a controversy bomb underneath her every other week, it seems like on Twitter, I think that a discourse bomb. Yeah, a discourse bomb for sure. 
and the fact that they just decided to not like to not make good a good movie with the set the crimes of grendelwald which i think is the one you were referencing with your that we can agree on um yeah i think that it's fair to say that they've shot themselves in the foot here so much so that i'm pretty sure warner brothers once doesn't want to make the last two movies in this franchise which jk rowling had said like years ago we're going to be a five film you know a five film series and i don't think that they're interested in making the last two right now but we'll get to that later uh in the meantime (laughs) second news story for today uh just just happened earlier today as of recording you sent me a little a little news link about the Safdie brothers who have not made a film since Uncut Gems. They've been well, Benny has been hard at work acting like he's doing other all sorts of acting gigs. Um, he was obviously in Licorice Pizza last year in a supporting role, but he's also been busy, I think, doing a TV show. I think he has like a, an HBO series or something. I don't know. It may be Showtime. He has some TV like miniseries that he's doing right now as well. I can't keep up with all TV shows nowadays. Yeah, but one of the one half of the Safety brothers has been busy, but it seems like they are getting back on track with a new directorial project that will also feature Adam Sandler. I haven't seen Good Time. I haven't seen any of the other movies, which I think is a shame. I, I would actually like to see Good Time sometime soon. Good I think I, um, I think I would enjoy that. What's the what, what their other film? Is it like Acid something? I can't remember what the, the name of their other. Yeah, film. I don't know what it is either. Um. Yeah, I think that's completely wrong. So just ignore that. Uh, but I haven't seen any of the other movies. I want to remedy that. But the good news is, is that I loved Uncut Gems. And it seems like the creative force behind that, plus Adam Sandler, is getting back together for their next movie. Knowing the Safdies, it's going to be some sort of anxiety-inducing, you know, dramatic thriller. Maybe they'll pivot and do something different. I don't know. But, Scott, are you excited? as excited about this as I am? I think it's worth pointing out that this does just say project. So it it's not guaranteed that it's even going to be a movie, but um, okay, that's true. That's fair. But anyway, um, whatever it is. Yeah, I'm excited. Like, I think we talked about it at the time with uncut gems, but uh, with uncut jams or however, Julia Fox says it, but um, that, you know, part of a large part of what made Sandler so great in that movie was the direction by the Safties of him. They knew how to use his, persona perfectly sure um so uh, i think you know it makes sense for them to partner up again you know i do wonder will they be able to do something similar in a completely different setting and environment or was uncut gems kind of this you know cosmic explosion you know lightning in a bottle type thing that it just happened to work out you know right time right place sort of thing might be um yeah it could be but, you know, again, the Safties have proven themselves elsewhere with good time. Um, and, you know, I think Sandler has the dramatic chops necessary um, if that's the route they're going down. Um, so in the sense that, yes, they combined to make one of my favorite movies from 2019 um, with one of my favorite performances from 2019, I'm absolutely excited. Um, but as somebody who, you know, is still definitely not would not consider himself an Adam Sandler fan. Sure. Um, you know, we'll see. Yeah. I recently got the criterion of uncut gems. I need to pop that bad boy on. Yeah, nice. That's not one that I own yet, but I do have the regular Blu-ray of it. Yeah. Quality film. Definitely quality film. Nothing nothing will take the place of the just incessant gasping at the end of that film in both theater screenings that I that I had of that. That was uh 
top tier filmmaking. I don't know, Scott. I have to say my crowd, we're not going to talk about the movie, but uh, at everything, everywhere, all at once, the reactions in the theater were pretty, pretty epic at certain points during the movie. Not to mention the girls next to me who were pretty hilarious. And I saw your tweets about that. Was it in like one of the small theaters at Aperture or was it in one of the big ones? No, no, no. This was at the AMC. Uh, oh, you watched it at AMC. Okay, I, you I hope that. I encountered them again. That's all I'm saying because they were very funny and they were quoting along to the Nicole Kidman video at the beginning. Um, I'm never they, sure if that's a red flag or a good thing when I hear people doing that in a movie theater. Well, uh, again, I found it amusing in this limited setting of sitting next to them at a movie theater. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying I would want to interact with them, like <laughs> be you, best friends with them or anything. You don't want to grab, uh, grab a meal and, and see a movie with them? I I did laugh when in the closing credits it pops up that Joe and Anthony Russo were the executive producers. Yeah. And all three of us just like, you know, did it recoiled basically. And yeah. uh, the one girl was like, I'm just going to pretend I didn't see that. And I was I'd, like, I'd yeah, like to that think was, that they would have that was the worst type ambulance. Of, that was the worst type of post credit scene, is what I said. Yeah, no, I I would hope they would have to, but they were, they they um they definitely have letterboxes, I'm sure. So if if you're listening, drop the letterbox so I can at least give you a follow. Um, they were also started yelling gay rights at the movie screen when the there was a Mitski song playing over the closing credits Mitski and David Byrne song actually second movie already this year and they pointed this out too because they'd obviously seen after yang as well but second movie this year that has a Mitski song over the closing credits second that has a so David Byrne song in the movie too Spider-Man What else had it David? Well that wasn't 2022 but fair yeah. You could have seen it in 2022 but fair enough yeah It was still you in can still see it <laughs> Well it was still in theaters in 2022 yeah but yeah Boucher. No, I, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying you could still see it, probably. Oh, yeah, maybe. Hopefully not. I don't know. Probably. I guess, but you no, still it's, can't it's see been everything like four... everywhere all at once. Yeah, you can. It's in wide release. I've still seen people that were saying they didn't have it anywhere near them. And it wasn't in, um, interesting. in Tennessee in some places. Yeah, interesting. I feel like that's a choice of the theaters, though, not the not the yeah. distributor at this point. I don't know. It is weird because like it was every, it was showing everywhere around here. I think it's I think it, it's wide release happened. Now, whether a theater licensed the movie to show it in the on one yeah. of its screens is another story. But, but it's safe to say that it is not showing every everything everywhere all at once. It's not showing everywhere all at once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was I yeah. didn't quite land the joke. It's so close. We'll, we'll workshop it. Yeah. Maybe we'll we'll do another couple takes after the podcast ends and we'll work it back in. Hey, great movie though. It totally lives up to the title. Go see it. It's the highest rated movie on Letterbox, ever. That's yeah. I, I four point six. I was looking I, at. I'm it sure we night. may discuss our thoughts later. It, it. I do not know that it necessarily warrants being the highest rated movie on Letterbox, <laughs> but it is very, very good. It is very, very original. It is sure. yeah, absolutely like a theater experience you will not forget. And I get why people really love it. But there are just certain aspects of it for me that I, you know, I only I gave it four and a half stars out of five. You're I, below I the going. average on Letterboxd. I am. Yeah, I literally I didn't go the full five when a lot of people are. But that's fine. That's cool. Like our friend Brandon, for example, um, who yeah, was on our June episode. Yeah. Yeah. He says it's like one of his favorite movies now. And he's not the only one who's saying that. So I know it's crazy, man. I, I, I rewatched the trailer the other day. The trailer is not exciting to me. Like, like I've said this. Again, I don't know if I've said this on the podcast, but I've said this to you. Like, I watched the trailer. It doesn't get me excited for the movie. Um, but then you I see the reactions really of people. It. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I was the same way. Like, it, this wasn't one that was, like, high on my anticipated list. It was the reactions that really did it for me. Scott, I, I really do think you will enjoy it. Like, I, I would be surprised if you don't, you know, if this yeah. doesn't end up being four and a half or five stars for you. Yeah, we'll see tomorrow. I'm excited. Uh, I was worried that, I mean, it's been out in New York for, like, three or four weeks that I was going to be going to, like, an empty screening, basically. Uh, especially because you're talking about, like, crowd reactions being pretty good mm-hmm. and stuff. But when I bought my ticket, like, this... <laughs> The random Wednesday night at New York in New York, this this theater is like half full. Um, That's good, which is pretty crazy. Word, so I'm word of mouth is yeah, word of mouth is helping it out. I think. Yeah, I absolutely. I mean, it's but it's one thing for to have a face release in, in areas and going at different times, but yeah, word of mouth is the only explicable reason. Because again, like this, like I said, this thing came out the weekend that I was in that I visited Winston Salem was when it came out in New York City. Yeah, so it's been out here for, I mean almost like three weeks a month almost it's uh it's been out for a while so it's cool to see that on you know random weekday you know one of the look it's not the big it's not like it's in the imax or whatever but um you know it's a sizable theater and it's half full so that's pretty cool looking forward to that i think that should do it for this episode of some like it's got the episode 187 any other thoughts to leave us with today there's a lot of great movies out right now whether you're watching something at home or sure. going to the theater um, check out a 2022 movie. It has been a great start to the year. Absolutely. There's always deep water. That is not that was not included in oh. it being a great start to 2022. I think that's my second worst movie of the year. So <laughs> no, third, third, third. I it's ahead of moon, moon, Moonfall and Sharp Stick. But yeah. Oh, man, I didn't. You rated it that low. I didn't remember that. Two and a half. Okay, that's still lower than Didn't I thought that it. you had. Interesting. Okay. Um, yeah. Look, I nothing no complaints about 2022 so far, really. I've enjoyed it. Um, after Yang, I'll continue to plug this movie. After Yang is out. Um on Showtime. On Showtime. Check it out. Koganada is a genius. Um, he's done a bunch of you know more widely available interviews about this movie, and he's just a fascinating person to listen to. Loved his episode. Uh, on the H24 podcast with um, Michelle's on Japanese, breakfast, Japanese yeah. breakfast. Yeah. I've listened yeah. to about half of it. It's, I don't know. There's something he, he's like one of those. I mean, there's other directors that do this. He's not unique, but he's one of those directors. that's just able to like the vibe you get from his movies. is exactly the same vibe you get listening mm-hmm. to him talk about his movies. It's like crazy. He's so such a warmth with that. So go check out after Yang, check out Coconata, check out Columbus. Um, I don't know if you can stream Columbus anywhere, but go check it out. Check out Japanese Breakfast album from last year. Sure. Very good. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Where can people find you on Twitter, Letterboxd, et cetera? At Scarby Dent. And I'm at Shelton2013 on Twitter, Letterboxd, et cetera. Please follow our podcasts on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. We have different reward tiers. Check it out. Support us if you can, but if not, you can still find us um, wherever you get your podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. We'd appreciate if you rate, review, subscribe, share, all that jazz so we can continue to reach a broader audience. And we really appreciate all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. We'll be back next week with, as I teased earlier, a review of quite possibly the last nail in the Wizarding World coffin, at least for a little while. That's Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore. Uh, We hope you'll join us then, but until then... For Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.